Welcome to Word Matters, presented by the Christian Standard Bible. Word Matters is a podcast dedicated to helping Christians understand some of the most confusing and controversial passages of the Bible. Now join the conversation with your hosts, Trevin Wax and Brandon Smith. Who are the Gentiles in Romans 2? That is the question that we will answer on this episode of Word Matters. I'm Brandon Smith alongside my co-host Trevin Wax, and today we are joined again by Dr. Tom Schreiner, the James Buchanan Harrison Professor of New Testament Interpretation and Professor of Biblical Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, he's also the co-chairman of the Christian Standard Bible's Translation Oversight Committee. He was a huge part um, of that translation. So Tom, thank you so much for hopping on with us today. Uh, Brandon and Trevin, it's great to be with you again. So, Tom, you and I had lunch uh, recently in Louisville, and uh, you had told me that you had actually changed your view on the passage that we're covering today, Romans 2, 14 to 15, uh, since you wrote your Baker commentary a few years ago. And so I thought, you know, this is one of those passages that um, any commentator that gets to Romans 2, you have this question of these Gentiles. Are these Gentiles Christians that he's speaking of? Uh, Are they people who aren't Christians? Are they Gentiles who haven't become Christians yet, but who may become Christians later? There's a lot of questions about this. And I think uh, maybe a, a lay person may not run across this one. It may not be as obvious to them as it is to a lot of people uh, who are doing scholarship. Uh, but I think pastors, particularly that are preaching this, are going to run into some of those issues. So I thought it'd be apt to have you just kind of discuss this passage a little bit um, and to model for us, honestly, kind of the humility and encouragement that, you know, even biblical scholars who have been working on Paul's theology in Romans for decades uh, still continue to wrestle with kind of thorny passages. So um, Trevin, if you want to uh, read the passage here, and then Tom, we'll kind of let you uh, just uh, work through this passage with us and explain some of the views to us. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds great. Okay, so Romans 2, 12 through 16, any pastor coming to this passage is going to have to make the decision, are they going to preach this as speaking of pre-Christian Gentiles or as Gentile Christians? Here's how it reads in the CSB. Um, all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. So, Tom, I, fascinating to me that you've actually changed your view on this. So that means you're going to be an excellent uh, uh, representative of both views, because at some point you've held to both views. Um, can you can you start off by uh, helping us understand why this passage um, can be problematic for some people, why it could be confusing? And the, the two major views on this, is Paul referring to Gentile Christians or to pre-Christian Gentiles? Uh, yes, uh, this is this is one of those thorny passages. I mean, the first time I worked on it, my first edition of Romans came out in 1998. I wrestled with it, and I've wrestled with it since. And a lot of scholars are writing about it. But maybe I just you know just to sketch in why people hold both views and why I've held both views. Um, so, so what are the arguments for it being? Uh, pre-Christian. I mean, first, the very subject and topic of the paragraph, I mean, it begins, 
with both Jews and Gentiles being condemned, uh, the Jews for disobeying the law and the Gentiles for disobeying the law or uh, moral norms on their hearts. So that's a that's a very strong argument, isn't it? I mean, that seems to be the topic of the paragraph as Paul begins in verse 12. Uh, another huge issue in this passage is what what is Paul talking about when he talks about the work of the law written on the heart? And the pre-Christian view says he's talking there about the natural law, this, this idea that even unbelievers have a sense of what's right and wrong. They don't have it in a written way. It's written on their heart. They know they know the moral norms of the law. And if you've read C.S. Lewis and the Abolition of Man, he talks about the Tao. Everybody knows the way. So that, that's the uh, understanding of the law written on their hearts. So, you know, another, just another way of putting it, this is, this is a reference to natural law. And the natural law was very common. This whole idea of natural law was very common in the Greco Roman world in Paul's time. And, and then another thing Paul talks about is he talks about um, the conscience. And the conscience, the argument is, the conscience uh, passes judgment on whether you've done what's right or wrong. So that seems to fit, you know, with a natural law sort of understanding. Or Paul speaks of doing the law doing the law by nature or naturally or by or by birth it's translated different ways but um again that seems to fit with a natural law type of argument how, how could he say about christians that they do the law naturally and that seems to be completely contrary to scripture where we don't we don't do the law uh, naturally and then the last thing i want to say is he talks about their thoughts in verse 15 their thoughts defending or even accusing them, or I mean, I mean, accusing or even defending them. And it sounds like he's saying usually their thoughts um, accuse them. So that he's talking about occasional, occasional obedience by non-Christians. So do you want to say anything there before yeah. I go on about those arguments? I, I've got a question on that. So, okay, so that's the that's the reason to think. these. You just laid out a lot of good reasons to think that Paul is referring to non-Christians, Gentile or pre-Christians, we would say. Um, I, can you give us like a rundown of some of the more of the well-known interpreters throughout church history or some of the scholars today who would hold that view that you just laid out? Yes, I would say, um, I mean, my recollection is I think it's the majority in uh, church history. Now, I don't, I don't have it right before me, but I think, if I remember right, that is, uh, that is Calvin's view. In terms of recent commentaries, uh, it's the view of, uh, of, of Moo, uh, Seyfried, um, Alan Holtgren, uh, Frank Thielman. I, I, I don't have as much right before me on history there. And this, um, is, and this is the view that, that you previously held, correct? That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's what I argued in my 1998 commentary. And then you said, so, in, that, you said in that commentary, it's really interesting, you said, now this is the pre-Christian, you said the other view that you're about to say, you said, man, this is really convincing 
but you use some language like, but it's not quite persuasive, almost, but not quite persuasive. So maybe explain now kind of the view that you hold, the other view, uh, and, and how you, that became more persuasive when at one time you said it was almost, but not quite, yeah, and that kind of pushed you over. I'm curious too. Uh, I, for, first of all, it would be great for if you laid out the second view yeah. so that everyone knows exactly what we're talking about, that, that these are referring to Gentiles who are Christians, so Gentile Christians on the last day. But I, I'd be curious as to what was the linchpin for you in moving you from the first view to the second. Sure, sure. And maybe maybe I'll start by naming some commentators who okay. hold this Christian view. Uh, the great commentary by Cranfield, the two volumes in the yes. International Critical Commentary. Um, more recently, uh, Michael Byrd holds this view. You might know that person, Brandon. Never heard of uh, him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Simon Gathercole holds this view. Um, N.T. Wright holds this view. Uh, Colin Cruz, an Australian New Testament scholar, uh, holds this view as well. So, okay, uh, here we go. Uh, why do I think that it's Christian, and here, what's the linchpin of it? But first, first, um, you know, if you're looking at your Bible, Paul has just said, uh, the doers of the law will be justified. So verse 14 follows right after he speaks of some people being justified, and it's connected with a four. So kind of the most natural way of reading it is that he's explaining what he just said. Some who do the law will be justified. We can return to that question, but I just want you to see the, the link textually. Secondly, and this is a huge argument, maybe the most important, that that phrase, the work of the law, written in their hearts, most naturally alludes to Jeremiah 31, verse 33. And that's a New Covenant passage, if you don't know that passage. I know Brandon and Trevor do, but for the listeners. That's a New Covenant passage where Jeremiah speaks of the law being written on the heart, and many interpreters that I just mentioned say, look, this is just a, this is a reference to God's New Covenant work. So his saving work of putting the law on the heart. And then uh, thirdly, related to that, Ardell Canada, who's written a really good article on this, by the way, he's one of the people who convinced me. He, he notes that if Paul was referring to that, that stoic idea of an unwritten law of nature, he doesn't use those expressions in Greek. They're, 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 they're available for him. But instead he talks about the work of the law. So the natural law in Greek literature is usually called the unwritten law, uh, the law of nature, and, and we don't see this. For, the fourth thing I want to say is uh, the words by nature. Um, actually, in the CSB, I think the CSB is a great translation, obviously, <laughs> but, you, but you can put that, and it's a matter of great debate, and uh, you know our committee debated it and discussed it. But but that phrase, that phrase doesn't necessarily go with um, doing the law. It can speak of those who don't have the law by nature. And uh, Simon Gathercole has argued strongly for that view. Cranfield argues for that view. So if, if I read it slowly, so when Gentiles who do not by nature— have the law. No, actually, that is what the CSB says, isn't it? Yeah, it is. 
It is what the CSB says. I, I just heard that wrong when you read it. Uh, so uh, it's speaking of having the law by nature. I think that it's not th speaking of doing the law by nature. Now, this is a little bit technical, but do you see my point? My point is Gentiles are not born like the Jews with the law, right. yet they're doing the law. Why are they doing the law? Because, in the Gentile Christian view, God has written it on their heart. My biggest problem, my biggest problem with the Christian view was always this idea of the accusing and defending thoughts. In verse 15, we talked about that. But I believe, again, I, Ardell Kennedy's argument, I believe Ardell is right that he's talking about two different different kinds of Gentiles here. Yes, some Gentiles are accused because they're lawbreakers, but some are defended. That is, some are right with God because, not perfectly, but they've done the law. So he's not, he's not saying, oh, you occasionally do the law, but you mainly break it. He's talking about two different kinds of Gentiles in verse 15. And, and one set of Gentiles are those who have actually kept the law. So, yeah, that's, that's it's complicated. Yeah, that's really but helpful. One though. more thing. Yeah, go ahead. So, what what tips me over? I mean, I, I think the New Covenant reference, and, and here's the second thing, and something I haven't mentioned. At the in Romans two six through eleven, and in Romans two twenty six through twenty nine, I think Paul is clearly talking about Gentile obedience to the law. At the end of the chapter, he says it's by the Holy Spirit. So I think it's unlikely that in 2, 14, and 15, and it, it was always an awkward uh, element in my view that he's speaking of Gentile Christians in 2, 6 through 11 who keep the law, and in 2, 26 through 29, but not in 2, 14, and 15. So I think it's more consistent and here now I follow Cranfield, Bird, Wright, and saying, yeah, all throughout he's thinking of Gentile Christians who are not obeying the law in their own power, but are obeying the law because they've repented, believed in Christ, received the Spirit, and the Spirit is empowering them to, to uh, keep the law. Obviously not perfectly, but substantially. Yeah, as, as any Christian would who has the Holy Spirit. Right, right. Okay, so if we're if we're going to take this take this down uh, a step now, so we kind of work through sort of the technical arguments here and that kind of stuff, which is super helpful. And now, um, kind of switching gears here, you were a pastor for a long time. I imagine you've preached this text before, and you may preach it again. How, why does this Why does this debate matter, or how does it matter, or does it really matter um, when it comes to actually preaching this to the congregation, applying it to people? How would you apply it? Uh, what What kind of are the key things that, that make this important uh, in the way that you preach it? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's very important because I think Paul is saying, and, and, and some don't preach or teach this clearly enough, that when you're a believer, your life changes. You become a new person. You live in a new way. Uh, clearly, we could overemphasize that. But we also may be guilty of underemphasizing it, that by the Holy Spirit, we're new, 
we, we live in a way that pleases God, if that's not happening at all in our lives, then it raises a question, do we really have the Holy Spirit? Mm, are, we right. really, are, we, are we really believers? Um, so very introspective people can come to passages like this and overread them and be very discouraged. And so we have to remember, Paul's not talking about perfection, but as a pastor I heard once say, uh, he's talking about a new direction, a new orientation, some evidence that we're that we belong to God. Yeah, I, I appreciate you making uh, even in how you just discussed that you you made distinctions based on how you would preach the text based on your pastoral understanding of the people in the congregation, uh, their their particular needs, what where they are spiritually. Um, how you can help them along to spiritual maturity in such a way that it, um, you, you'd want to, to be making clear what the text means at the same time that you're applying that skillfully to a, a person's heart. Um, so uh, that's, you know, this is, this is one of those texts that I have, I've seen a lot in my study of Romans through different commentaries, uh, and I, I had noticed that Moo and Bird took put, took different positions on this, uh, but hadn't thought of the pastoral ramifications. So I appreciate you you laying that out for us. Yeah, thank you so much. I another comment I want to make is how does it function in Romans? Uh, so you know Romans chapter one verse eighteen through chapter three verse twenty. The theme, the major theme, is that everyone falls short. Right. So how does how does uh, an emphasis on o Gentile obedience fit in with that theme? And I would argue that Paul is anticipating chapters 9 through 11, where he's trying to provoke the Jews in a positive way to jealousy and belief by saying, look, these Gentile Christians who've repented and have received the Spirit, they're uh, living the life you should be living. Interesting. So it's so it's a call. It's a call to faith, a call to repentance, because you see this in Romans two. In Romans two, it's primarily directed to Jewish unbelievers. Yeah, that's that's really really helpful. I think that's something that uh, pastors and, and teachers can can grab onto. You may need to listen to it twice if you're if you're out there listening to this episode one more time and and spend a little bit of time with it, but I think it's worth doing. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for jumping on with us and, uh, and working through this passage with us. Well, thanks so much, Brandon and Trevin. It was uh, very enjoyable, and well, we're all reminded uh, we have to study the text uh, ardently. It's not always easy. That's yeah, right. yeah, and it's good, that, good we have people like you uh, to model for us that, hey, even, like I said, even a Bible scholar can change his mind if, if the text drives him that way, and that's what we should all be aiming for. So thank thanks you so much. It was great, great conversing. Yeah, thanks for being on. And Trevin, as always, thanks for co-hosting. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Word Matters has been presented by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is faithful to the original languages, but clear for today's audience. Find out more at csbible.com.